0: Well, I said last week as we looked at the first 20 verses of Psalm 68 that I could as well use last week's title for this week's sermon or use this uh, week's title for last week's sermon. Well, tonight's sermon is entitled God's Supremacy, but actually we were seeing that when we were considering us as the people of God, protected and preserved. And the thought is not far away In these last verses of this psalm, that particularly we're going to be looking at this evening, though not exclusively. It is one psalm, and the themes at the beginning are the themes at the end, and uh, the themes at the end are the themes that are there at the beginning. And it's hard, and I said it was somewhat arbitrary that we cut it off at a particular point, but in a sense to try to make manageable the task of preaching, and so that we're not trying to fit too much into one sermon. But as it stands, there's still more material here than I can certainly cover in this sermon. And I'm sure there are questions and verses that you'll be looking at, puzzling over, and that I'll not be able to have the time to spend uh, on this evening. But that, as it may be, we see within it contrasts. We saw them last time, they're there again. And God's people, well, they come across, don't they, in this as needy. They come across as a a people surrounded by much hostility with enemies, kings, surrounding powerful, powerful nations that we were looking at a little last week. And we have to see that that is our place, that we need preservation. We need protection because there is a lot around us and about us. And we need our perhaps our spiritual senses at times quickening to be able to spot that and see it, recognize it and be able to pray about it. But we saw that uh, the failure of old refugees, uh, success and power and fame and status that they simply won't offer us the protection, the preservation that we need, that hatred that is, is there and which we, we see coming across to us there, the, the mountain of many peaks in verse fifteen, beautiful mountains abation. But this is not a representation of where God's blessing is. God's blessing is upon his mountain Zion. There's the difference that all the beauty and all the splendour of the world is is actually full of envy and dislike, discontent towards God's word, God's work, what God declares to be his holy habitation. Well, our first heading tonight, really God's supremacy being the sort of theme to hold before us, serving notice on the wicked. God, in part, is doing He's serving notice on the wicked. Right so at the beginning is a, a prayer for God to act. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those also who hate him flee from before him. And the prayer is also an expression of God's intention. That are not fine words, hopes, aspirations to sort of throw into the air, but where there is nothing that's going to follow, that it's just pious hope. That it is actually a prayer that is expressive of what is actually God's intention. That he's going to scatter. He's going to scatter verse 1, and we saw last time perhaps he scatters the king's in verse 14 it's like a flurry of snow they've all been scattered there's not much substance to a flurry of snow it's it's insubstantial and that's what god has done he's going to scatter them for all the might and majesty that they have the language is 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 one of supremacy that they will they'll melt away Wax melts before the fire in verse 2. They look so solid, permanent and enduring, they looked as if they were built to last. But like wax, when you begin to apply the candle to it, well, quickly, it's turning liquid form and dripping down and filling your saucer or whatever there with, with all the molten wax just melts. And as smoke is driven away, well, if there's bonfire But there's a breeze. Well, you know all about it, don't you? Because the smoke gets blown all over the place. And the smoke can't stop it happening. It hasn't got any substance, no ability to come back with some superior power or force. It just gets blown away. And there is that whole aspect of God's supremacy bound up in the kind of terminology, the kind of illustrations and words. Armies, well, what of them? Verse 12, they flee. They flee and uh, they're describing the folk at home, dividing the spoil. There's going to be plenty. These kings don't stand a chance. They've gone and there is the plunder to enjoy. Well, within this and this whole thought of God arising, dealing with his enemies, is not an act of pique or hurt pride. Is not God, as it were, arming himself there and taking all his adversaries to court. Some pretty famous cases going through the courts in this country and over the water in the United States. Some pride that's been hurt and perhaps is going to get hurt a little bit more by the time the judges in these cases have brought in their, their rulings. But just a bit of petulance, a bit of petty pride, uh, a bit of Synthetic at times, perhaps even performative anger, and uh, really, it's just an emptiness. There, it's nothing worth being angry about, or that person feeling they've been wronged. Well, when you look at who they are, you think, well, they don't really amount to anything very worthwhile. Whereas God, this is not petulance. This is not some petty hurt pride. This is actually justice. This is justice. God doesn't declare wickedness and the wicked. In careless language, people quickly uh, reach for the most pejorative terms that they can. They uh, Quickly, to their lips will come very strong denunciations. Well, God can describe people as enemies. God can describe the wicked. They are perishing at the presence of God. And not be wild in the use of his language. He's not inaccurate here. He's not exaggerating so as to feel a bit better about administering justice and wrath to them. This is righteous anger. And it's hard for us sometimes to grasp it because we don't often feel it ourselves. Very often our anger is is there directed at something that's not perhaps quite as worthy an object as is God's anger. And he makes it there to count. The wicked may have weapons, but God, well, just referring, as I say, still to some of the material, that was before us last week in verse 17. Well, he has more. He's got 20,000, even thousands of thousands. You can't number them. That uh, his victories. putting it in earthly terms, comparing God and the armies of the earth. Well, he outnumbers them quite considerably, and they'd be wise to make their peace with him. We have references across to the enemies of God's people, and Bashan, we mentioned that, and we can think of King Og, we can think of him bringing back from Basham, as if those who were his enemies there, he's going to bring them back, bring them back from the depths of the sea. The, the Egyptian riders who perished in the Red Sea, that vengeance may be carried out upon them. might have thought the vengeance already had been carried out upon them, but there's more to come. There, there is an eternal dimension to that vengeance and indeed God's people being part of it. You'll see the references there in verses 30 and 31 to Egypt. And Egypt always stands there for a world power opposed to God. It is a name to capture worldliness, uh, aims, ambitions that are just for this world, fame, fortune, riches, false gods, which have no help beyond this world that bring no true comfort. And Ethiopia too, in those days, being a country likewise, fierce in its opposition, teaming up with Egypt and coming against the Lord's people. You read about it in the prophecies of Isaiah. So there are the enemies, but, well, we see them surrendering, don't we, in verse 31, the envoys coming out of Egypt. They're, they're wanting to make peace. They realize we're outnumbered here. We're onto hiding to nothing, and we want to make peace. And there's Ethiopia quickly stretching out her hands to God. That's the sort of act of, of pleading for mercy and surrender because they realize that God has served notice on them and will carry that through. So effortlessly, like the wax melting we've seen, like the smoke being blown away so effortlessly. And though now, well, the nation of Ethiopia presents something more helpful and friendly, perhaps the nation of Egypt, even at its best, but beyond it. And for us, again, we remind ourselves spiritual foes, spiritual enmity, philosophies, ideas, the people that are the spokespeople for those philosophies and ideas, and who bring great, great harm. And so we are ever mindful that God has served notice on them, that he has declared of them their future destruction, all the philosophies that are intellectually and morally Bankrupt. All of the utopias that people, uh, kind of generate within their own hearts. Idols that they bow down to. Nationalism, racism, various isms that are man's creation. Man's creation. But beyond man, you can fear at times they're something more devilish yet. You see the violence that such people are moved to conduct. And all of it incoherent. All of it on the wrong side of history. Because history is showing us that you need to be on the side of God. You need to be on his side. He was on the Lord's side. But there's the question. And we're wise to answer that we. We are on the Lord's side. Because there's no price. There's no hope for the other side. They're on the wrong side of history. And so we declare that. But, well, what do we actually see? Well, often we see, if we're honest, anything but this we see the godless triumphing, all virtue confounding. We find ourselves at times deeply perplexed at the providences of God, the victories the wicked seem to win, at the seeming defeats that God's people appear to suffer. Well, in Psalm 73, the psalmist, I'm just going to read actually a fair section of it, has has questions that really speak for us all. Just to verse 2, Psalm 73, and just following through into the psalm. He writes, though having asserted that God is good to Israel and such as are pure in heart, and he's going to recover himself, but look what happened to him. But he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff, speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return here. Waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. And he goes on to speak about how he feels all he's done. Trying to serve God, love God, believe in him has been in vain. Well, look at the wicked. They're prospering. There I am, chastened every day and plagued in that way. Though I am careful in how I walk and penitent and not uh, not following in their ways. But then when I look at their ways, well, they seem to be having a whale of a time. They seem to be getting away with it. And they speak against God. They talk against him there and he doesn't seem to do anything. They just seem to go on in that way, living a life of ease, increasing in riches, as though they were prosperous. Well, that's in the word of God. That's valid for God's people to feel. And the psalmist is expressing something there, which I'm sure at times we all feel. Where is this justice? Where are the enemies being scattered? Where is God arising? You see so much woe, so much trouble in the world where the wicked seem to be prospering adversaries against the church seem to be strong we pray for the suffering church don't we so many countries so many places where the religion particularly islam of course is, is greatly opposed how the upper hand treats christians as very second class citizens as though they have no rights no place can be treated like dirt and can be abused, and can have the law used against them, that their testimony won't stand up, the testimony of a Muslim much more valuable in that way. So we have much to provoke us, much to have to bear. You read Psalm 68, you read the things you do, but then you see the ease that the psalmist in Psalm 73 writes about. You see the way in which they have abundance, they're violence. They get away with all of that. Their tongue walks through the earth. They're, they're the ones who are doing all the speaking, having all their own way. They they are masters of the place. They seem to rule. They seem to run things here. And we can wonder at that. It's interesting, I think, in Luke chapter 18, in the parable there of the persistent widow, The God actually anticipates this. When he says that, well, she... Whence, just to paraphrase quickly the psalm, she went and went and pestered this unjust judge till finally he gave her justice, the justice that she was looking for against her adversary. And then the Lord explains, Luke 18, verse 6 and following. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, which was just earlier in the parable. And then the application. And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them. He goes on, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Will people have given up? He is saying to them there, yes, he he will come to the aid of his people, his elect. Cry out to him day and night. It's not been an easy journey for them. And they've been crying and crying and crying because they've seen nothing. They haven't seen what they're expecting to see happen. Because God has been bearing long with them. He's kept them waiting, kept them waiting, waiting, waiting. But do you know they didn't give up? They kept crying and crying and crying. And then I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Well, we've got Second Peter chapter 3 open there, haven't we? A day like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. That God is not uh, moving slowly at all. It may seem to us at times He is, but He's not, and He's moving plenty, plenty quick enough. The wheels of justice are in motion, even though we can feel very, very disappointed, and long to see more, seeing the wicked triumphing in so, so many places. So it seems. So there is with us in what we do and what we have in Scripture. What we have in Psalm 68, God's supremacy, we announce it. We announce it. We announce it before, properly speaking, it's happened. There's plenty of history in the Bible, nations that were upended there in Egypt, which defied God and smarted under his chastisements for their temerity in doing it. But we believe that even in this gospel age where we perhaps see the gospel, languishing something in the hymn that we just sang wasn't it the promises travailing languishing longing to see those things and people have wept praying that prayer father let your kingdom come and we want to see it come it's just the enmity with the opposition see people seemingly having the upper hand against the church but we announce what will be and we announce it by faith we read scripture. We say amen to it, even though we haven't seen the fulfillment of it. So in uh, first uh, Thessalonians and in chapter five, verses one to four, writes there but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Or when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labour pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. And he's saying to them, you have light, you have truth, you have the Bible, now we might say, for us, and that that day will come. But if we're beginning not to believe it, then it will suddenly catch us out, it will overtake us will be found careless and faithless. That's why it's said Read in Luke 18, when the Son of Man, when he comes, find faith on the earth, will they have packed up, given up? The Lord has borne long with them, kept them waiting, kept them waiting. Will they have given up? Like the psalmist in Psalm 73, will their feet almost have slipped? Will they have stumbled? And it's a good question, isn't it? One that is quite painful at times to ask ourselves. We read Second Peter, Chapter three so much in there, isn't there? About waiting. God being patient and long suffering toward this world, long suffering toward us. And we are more impatient because we want to see justice. We're more impatient. Wicked seem to be triumphing, This seems wrong. That goes against the grain. Surely God, you're watching, you're listening. Well yes, yes he is, actually. Don't worry, he is, and it's all there in Second Peter chapter three and just to read again the first seven verses, beloved, and I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Saviour. Knowing this first, scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? But since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That's, where, that's their words. That's what the psalmist in Psalm 73 seemed to find. But then Peter says, for this they will willfully forget. By the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and petition of ungodly men. We announce that. Haven't seen it. And it's a big thing to talk about, isn't it, there, when so little is happening. And there's just so much injustice. And who are we? But a handful of people here tonight, aren't we, makes the point for us. Who are we to be saying these things? Except here it is in the word of God. And we hear, as it were, a clock ticking somewhere. The heavenly clock is ticking, and this world and its scoffers who say, well, "Where is this coming?" One day going to be shocked and surprised because He will come. Christ will come again. And then, of course, too late for those. It's it's come. It's sprung upon them. That was the thief in the night. They hadn't expected this, and suddenly they're all undone. And we preach that. We preach that on. Warm spring evenings when the world just seems to be, as we read it here, just going on as it always has from the beginning of creation. How many cars it is going through the marketplace here in Christ, Was it, 5,080 or so? It's better be 5,080 tomorrow and the day after that. Life just going on and on. Except one day it won't. And we announce that. We haven't seen it, but we announce it. We preach it. We warn people about it, we take to the streets of Belpa or wherever else. We've got the texts outside, we have the internet hopefully taking this to needy souls wherever they be, near or far. Because this is what the Word of God says. And it's all in keeping with the character of God who is just. The unjust judge in Luke 18 can at least have some parallel and similarity where he actually got round to doing the job and giving justice. Well, how much more God, who is just, he understands justice. None of us really understand justice, but he does. And he will give what is right. And he will reward those who have done wickedness and acted so cruelly and violently. All the things that horrifies that we read about, there will be justice. And God will bring it to pass, though he might bear long with us, though he might keep us waiting. That's part of his patience. You see it in verse nine of second Peter that is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Still a day for these evildoers to repent. Still a day for careless people who scoff against God to repent. Another day we'll perhaps be out, God willing, in the streets of Belpa. God willing. Maybe they won't be there. Maybe he's come before then. Too late. But perhaps not. We'll be out again and warning people again. And that, in a sense, is because God is long-suffering toward the people, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And we say that in Psalm 73, we seem to be preaching more Psalm 73 than Psalm 68 this evening. But in Psalm 73, when the psalmist, perhaps they're rather exaggerating what he is seeing, he's just been so gloomy, so depressed that, The wicked seem to have everything going for them. Except when you look more closely, they don't. They're falling apart, actually. When you see what trifling things they're satisfied with, what stupid behaviour they indulge in, what madness they entertain and treat seriously, you realise that they actually haven't got much going for them at all and that actually it's already falling apart. We found fear, we find unbelief, we find idolatry. The most obvious and basic kind and people demeaning themselves and behaving very tawdry ways. Well, I won't allude there to what some of the cases in the courts are revealing at the moment. That people more money than sense these people have here. And their behavior does beggar's belief. Well, God has served notice on the wicked. Take heart. Be patient. He is bearing long with us, bearing long with this wicked world. We must be patient and not forget the promise of God, which is what Peter is saying here, though you may be tempted to be deflated and discouraged, that you may say to so where is the promise of his coming? And Peter's there to say don't go down that road. He said he's coming. The flood that he brought, that is a proof that one day go in this world's fire that It's not just going to destroy. It's actually going to bring something better out of it. It's going to melt with fervent heat, but then something else is going to emerge, the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, where there will be justice and there will be peace. Well, my final heading this evening is, is actually that we are to sing. Part of our proclamation, part of our act of faith is to sing that that is such a theme that comes through in this psalm that we have singing verse three verse four verse twenty five verse thirty two verse twenty five you got the singers, the players on instruments, you have there the procession of people worshipping people, praising people, rejoicing people. The God has declared. That he will win out. Verse twenty-one is going to wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his trespasses. It's been warned, actually. So I was imagining somebody, their nations that have been warned, don't do this, but they did, and so they pay for their transgression. And we too will win out. And it says there in verse twenty-three, very graphically, in the language of sort of military battles of that day, that your foot may crush them in the blood. And the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from your enemies. Well, that's, that's pretty lurid language there. And we read, don't we, in the New Testament that we're soon going to crush Satan, the devil, our spiritual foe there par excellence, under our feet. And in the meantime, we sing. We are to sing. Verse 32, sing to God, you kingdoms of the earth. Oh, sing praises to the Lord. So inviting people there, come, sing praises, nations near and far, sing his praises, sing about, well, things that follow in verses 34, 35, as we're in this strength and his, his excellence, his power and protection that's over Israel, his strength is in the clouds, as in the mighty sort of weather systems and thunderings there. And that's God is more awesome than his holy places. Mount Sinai was awesome enough and the shaking and the darkness and the trumpet. But he's matching more than that. His power and glory is greater than that. And he is there giving strength and power to his people. And then we find we endure when there is injustice and we find we battle on when the odds seem to be stacked against us. And in that, why we even sing. We are even ready to sing. Singing isn't something people do so much when they're wretched and miserable. They go to football matches these days, but I think the taunt used to be, you only sing when you're winning. And there's uh, some truth in that, that the team that's just losing 3-0 the fans there don't usually strike up a soul. The team winning 3-0 does. Um, not the other team. But we, we are indeed friends, the, the winning team. We, we have God for us, not against us. We have God serving notice through the gospel, called to repent, repent or perish. That goes out. And those of us used to hear, hear it. And we sing of this God. We sing of his justice. We sing of his dealing with the wicked. We sing of how the ungodly will perish, That there is that side to it. God is not ignorant of wickedness, not disinterested in it. So he just looks away when horrible things are happening to children, looks away when horrible things are happening to women, so if he's just pure disinterested in it. Although some of those people may seem to get away with it, all the sentences they get seem ridiculously short. Yes, one day, all of it, yes, all of it will be accounted for. And we, not that we think we're superior, not that we think that we have, by our own virtue, kind of hauled ourselves out of the holes that other people are in, or extracted ourselves out of wickedness, no, we attribute it all to God. We've been there too. We've been the same as them, same as it all, but by mercy, by grace, we were restrained We were helped, and we're in a different place. And we agree with God. We agree that he was right to judge. Well, we learnt he was going to judge us so we didn't repent. We learnt that we needed a savior precisely because else we perish. But there is his death on our behalf and how grateful we were to see that. And we sing about it. We don't just preach it. We don't just read it. We don't just pray it. We should do all of that. But we also sing it congregations of God's people singing these things because the reality of those things well we can express it but there's something more we express when we sing it there's something more that music gives expression gives voice vocalizes better those things that are in our hearts that we believe they have their moments for proper and right expression and the music helps to serve in that. It amplifies them. And to whom do we sing? Well, we sing to God primarily. We sing to Him. And, uh, well, we have to very much, uh, uh, hope in, in His own patience and long suffering with us. Oh, our voices can be creaky and, uh, ain't quite uh, the best there. And voice choir isn't it coming soon to, uh, to Worksworths and uh, mighty fine voices, I'm sure they'll they'll have there too, and friends who sing in such choirs and places, well, yep, yeah, we, we have creaking voices there, but I'm happy to think that God is pleased that we should sing, that we should nevertheless take what is in our hearts, find a tune to fit with it, and sing it, sing it to him, glorious themes, themes about him about his victories, about the vindication of his character, about his son, and the love that was there, absolutely full, filling his life, filling all of his words and all of his works. Ephesians chapter 5, just as an instance of, of what we are about there. And from verse 18 of Ephesians 5, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is, there's his name. We sing in his name. We lift up his name. And this is our wonderful duty to express it, yes, to God, but notice it says speaking to one another that our singing is actually for the encouragement of each of us, that we're here together, uniting in raising our voices, in being expressive of what is true for you and true for me. That this Christ whom we give thanks to, so much thanksgiving, isn't there, in hymns and what we sing in our prayers, thanksgiving. And that comes through, expressed in what we sing singing, music, accessing deeper parts of our soul, unlocking what's there, what's been put in by the Spirit of God, and now giving it a place for its proper expression and encouraging each other in that. You're singing, I'm singing, and we're singing to this God together. And we're encouraged to hear each other singing, that he means something to you as well, does he? He means that to me. It's like we're on the communion table, I'm partaking in it. You are too. He means that to me. He means that to you. And I'm strengthened by your faith. You're part of this. And that's good. And we're in this in a nice sense all together. So we sing and should sing as though we mean it. Ah, hopeless to sing. You don't believe the half of it there. We may sing beautifully, but it's it's not the real thing if we don't mean what we sing. Acquaintance with him, knowing him intimately, believing that while we sing it. And sometimes in the singing it, we actually believe it that bit more. What we express and find ourselves expressing, other people expressing, and we come out of it strengthened in faith. Singing with introspection, as though we're trying to find something, make something happen, kickstart something. Why? I I think those who get so introspective in that, they just lose themselves in themselves. Well, naturally, perhaps discover what is there to be discovered in the singing. And whatever we lack here on earth, whatever we haven't got by way of voices, whatever we haven't got by way of an ear for music or whatever it might be, well, heaven will perfect it all. They're all the praises that are sung to God. The declarations that we make there will be in perfect harmony. We'll be expressive of more still. We'll sing to the Lord a new song because we will we'll know more. We'll know more what we're saved from. We'll know more what we're saved for. We'll know just how good the Lord Jesus Christ is, just how beautiful his character, how worthy is the Lamb. We'll sing it for more knowledge, more that's gone in, more we've seen, more we've heard, more we've understood. And when the time comes to sing of it, we'll sing of it the more heartily, more willingly, more joyfully. And all of that perfected finally one day. And in heaven. So there is Psalm 68 showing us God's supremacy in a world where frankly speaking, we see at times little of that expressed or seen. But we believe one day it will be shown in greater measure that there'll be things on earth to gladden our hearts. There'll be times when God turns the tables remarkably upon his enemies. But the greater installment is Christ's return. And that will right all wrongs. That will put every Last thing there, into a proper place. And we'll rejoice to see it so, and to see our Saviour reigning over it all, and to be there with him, agreeing with him, and drawing from him that we may. Our praises, I can well believe, will only get better and better in heaven. Because the more we see, the longer we're there, the more there is to sing about, the more there is to tell. So we look forward to that. But in the meantime, friends, we sing. We sing about things we haven't yet seen. We sing about God's justice, God's judgment. We haven't seen it yet, but we believe it's coming. And so our last hymn is 280. I'm thinking of Christ's return, aren't we in this? Lo, he comes with clouds descending.